Launch Angle Podcast, Episode Three. We're back with Drew and James. Um, Drew, I wanted to kick this episode off by talking about what you're doing because what you're doing is pretty interesting. You're down in the Dominican Republic this week. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm down here in the DR. Um, I, I think I mentioned on the last podcast that I head down to the Dominican Republic as part of my job um, working for a baseball team. So I work for the Tampa Bay Rays. And we have this academy down in Santo Domingo, uh, Dominican Republic. And so I'm just down here right now checking in with some of the athletes that I was working with um, up in Florida at a rookie ball complex, um, as well as some of the other players that I've been working with throughout the year down at the academy. Um, this will be my third trip down here. So starting to get a little bit more comfortable kind of coming down here and speaking the language and knowing the culture. So, yeah, should be down here till Friday. So little five-day trip. Awesome. Yeah. No, I don't know anything about the DR. I've never been to the DR. I've never spent, I haven't even spent much time out of the country. Is it a big adjustment when you go down there? Yeah, I was, um, I actually had dinner right before this and I didn't like bring my phone. So I was just talking to this guy that did international business down here in the DR. And I would say the one thing that I noticed the most uh, culturally, besides kind of the apparent things, um, you know, different cuisine and things like that, different language is uh, the focus on relationships. So that's something that I've, actually I've kind of taken away from the job, just working with the population um, that I'm working with is just forming relationships before making a lot of asks of people. Um, I think in the US, you know, we're very quick to make deals as long as the terms look good without building relationships. And, you know, this has really just taught me to build a really strong relationship with someone, you know, before um, making an ask or giving recommendations or advice or anything like that. Um, you know, in the United States and also especially down here, yeah, no, that's interesting. I never really think about that. What you can take away from how other cultures deal with relationships. Is there any, I guess, I guess you kind of already said it, but you're kind of applying that in life uh, stateside and kind of your, I guess, the culture you grew up in. Has that, does that kind of paid any dividends for you yet? Yeah, I think just has that been beneficial? Yeah, I think just staying in touch with, um, you know, family a little bit more and just making sure I'm uh, not not getting too caught up in kind of like the, I guess, grind or hustle culture, whatever people kind of call it and make sure I call loved ones and friends and things like that. I would say that's really the only way it's impacted me, but um, high ROI on all of those things because feel like that's improved my relationships um, in the short amount of time that I've been working uh, right for this team and picking up on this kind of cultural thing. Yeah, things are slower in other countries and you lose sight of that. I saw something recently about about Italy, the slow pace of culture in Italy 
and how you know you don't you don't get a lot of innovations coming out of Italy in the business world. Not to say yeah. you know, it's not to say people from Italy aren't hardworking, but they do. I, from what I've heard, have just a noticeably slower pace of life, and you do see that. Just, I think throughout the Mediterranean, um, it's pretty common for businesses to shut down in the afternoons for I think like two hours or something. People take big lunches, yeah. they take naps. Um, also, as a result, they're less stressed. I, you know, they have lower mortality rates, um, and I think on average smoke more than people in America do. But it's just they have they have a more relaxed pace of life and. I've seen a lot more people too nowadays talking about toxic productivity and toxic productivity culture. And I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think mean, you, you, you know, at, at one point I was, I was very obsessed with all the productivity tools and things like that. And I kind of came out on the other side of that, just doing the things that are probably the lowest friction for me in terms of getting things done. I think, you can go down that rabbit hole and, and actually feel worse and get less work done. Yeah. Um, and do you feel like that has come out of you finding productivity tools that you like uh, more and you kind of are just sticking with them or just kind of like a frustration with the ROI on the whole? Um, sort of. I mean, Chris Williamson, he's the host and founder of the Modern Wisdom podcast, he has a good point on this because he talked about how he went down the productivity rabbit hole too. And he says, for a lot of people, you know, it's probably good and necessary to to if you're interested, go down that rabbit hole just so you have an idea of the landscape of the different productivity frameworks and tools, and you kind of understand the architecture of all of that. But you can come out on the other side it can cause you a lot of stress to try to really optimize your systems and all things like that but you can come out on the other side and most of the time people do if, if they do come out on the other side having just a much simpler approach he takes the approach of i don't even think he takes notes which i don't necessarily agree with but his approach is that if something is really impactful and really resonates and is really important he's just going to remember it like there's, yeah. there's just no way he's going to forget it. So he just sticks to kind of that heuristic and, and allows the things of the most resonance to just bubble to the top and, and they tend to stay there and that works for him. And, you know, I find that probably works for me. I try to take more notes, especially in a work setting. I try to document a lot of the conversations that I have with people which I find to be helpful. Maybe we can talk about that um, today or, or some other time. But in terms of just personal life productivity, I don't I don't worry about it too much anymore. I um I read almost everything on Kindle, so all the highlights and all the notes I take on books just thinks to the cloud. So it's just not something I have to worry about. And I also find it's actually not something I go back to that often. So it's anything that I remember or use in my day to day. It's it's stuff I've read from books that I just happen to remember because it was so impactful. That being said, I don't think there's anything wrong with going back and looking at your notes or highlights. It's definitely a benefit to it, but that's just one approach. Yeah, I, I think the thing with a lot of these, um, you know, productivity hacks and um, ways to whatever, 2X your attention from reading and whatever it is, is it really just depends on the task, right? Like if you're just reading you know, a novel for fun, 
and you're just like trying to have the best note-taking system to retain as much as possible it's like I, I just don't think that's the best way to live your life I mean that's that's great for some people but um if you think about like flow uh like Mihai Csikszent Mihai's work uh I don't want to butcher this too much by getting out of my lane but um I think what he says is the task needs to be self-reinforcing and you're kind of doing the task for the sake of doing it, right? I think if you're focused on trying to do things the best way possible every single time, instead of just like, hey, I have this book and I want to have like this enjoyable experience just reading it, I think it almost takes you away from doing it for the purpose or the sake of doing it. What do you kind of think about that? Yeah, I completely agree. And you shouldn't, I don't think you should take away those experiences from yourself. I've gone down the path of, you know, trying to read a book with a notebook next to me or with my laptop open and take notes as I read. And it invariably always degrades the reading experience. Now, I, yeah, I you're just, shifting read, the focus, I would say. Yeah, nowadays, you know, I read and I, I take highlights and that's pretty much it. And I use a note taking app called obsidian which people can check out it's called uh you can find it at obsidian.md it's a free note-taking app and there's a lot of really cool plugins that they have for it and they have one that syncs your kindle highlights so i just rely on that and i have it all on my computer i can you know take notes and kind of elaborate on things if i want to so it's always i like having the option to do it but that being said i rarely do it um but yeah, no, no, no. I, I totally agree with that. Doing more things with just the sake of doing them and not trying to adulterate that experience with things that you feel like you should be doing is a good way to go. Yeah. And then I want to circle back to something you said. So you say you take notes um, at work with interactions you had. Is that what you said? Yeah. So I have a, I have a, I use the same note-taking software for work cool thing about this for anyone who cares uh, or even understands it's, i guess a little in the weeds but obsidian is just a local software on your computer and it uses the local files on your computer so it uses markdown files so it's all things that are stored on your hard drive so it's nothing that's in a cloud so basically you can just create two different folders so i have one folder for you know my personal stuff and then i have another folder for work stuff so the things don't get mixed up and then in that work folder, I have files with uh, all my colleagues who I have regular interactions with. I have a file with their name. And so I just store notes with, you know, the date, maybe put a couple like tags in there to at like a high level so I can search quickly what the conversation was about. And then I'll just take notes as we're talking. And I find that to be really helpful, um, you know, just in case you ever have to confirm something with somebody or, or, or go back or you forget what happened. Um, in the conversation, there was a cru crucial piece of information that you could take away. I've, I've learned this is something that from, from podcasts and some other people I work with who are, are successful. This is something they do. So it's something I try to emulate. Yeah, what kind of benefits have you seen from doing that? And also, my second question would be, um, how granular do you get with the notes? Um, like, are you putting in, you know, their birthday to remember or, you know, their favorite, I don't know, uh, it might get borderline creepy at some point, but like favorite Netflix show, like, I don't know. 
uh, how granular do you get with it? Or is it more just general conversations? Sometimes if I'm having a conversation for the first time with somebody and just to get to know you, I will make a few notes about stuff like that. It doesn't hurt to remember those things, especially with people who you're going to have an ongoing relationship with. It It is definitely beneficial to remember those things and just be a you know human about things. Um, that being said, how granular do I get? I guess somewhat granular. I can almost type verbatim what people say. I'm also I, I'm pretty good at typing and can type pretty quickly. So, but I you know I try to keep it high level. Um, but yeah, no, I I'd say, yeah. I I guess I get pretty granular. Yeah, I mean, to me, kind of working in nutrition, we use the electronic medical record, and I know you have some clinical experience as well, but it kind of sounds like you're almost creating a electronic medical record, you know, where you're, you know, they're not your patients, um, but you're entering like critical data about them so that things don't slip through the cracks. So I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Um, you know, just like you'd enter in critical vital signs or um, medical history or things like that. You're kind of doing that with your, your coworkers and then maybe even clients as well. Yeah. And sometimes I'm, I mean, sometimes I won't take notes during the conversation, but I'll do an end of day review. So I also have a folder for that where I'll just type up anything that I remember from the day and, and kind of, you know, intersperse it with my own thoughts and feelings about the day. Cause it's nothing anybody's ever going to read. It's just, it's files on my personal computer. Um, so it's, you know it's not like uploading to some main database where you know everyone i work with or like my boss can see it it's just for my own use so i like doing that it's kind of a, it's kind of more of a way to actually journal about the day but it is useful i find it useful to set an intention to for next day of, of what i actually want to accomplish based on how that day went that's another useful trick yeah and do you journal outside of that um, and if you do, like what kind of form does that take? Is that, um, you know, more of like a gratitude journal kind of spiritual focus or, you know, self-improvement or just kind of writing, like, what does that look like if you do? Sometimes I don't journal regularly, but sometimes I will feel compelled to journal because I think in writing has always, uh, helped me feel mentally just better uh, you know you can unload a lot of thoughts and and for me I find that very therapeutic so I will journal uh so I'll go through phases where I do it maybe you know a few times a week or you know every night every morning to not doing it for a while and then going back to it so I kind of do it as needed I exp I've experimented I've never I've experimented with doing gratitude journals I've I know I know there's so much science and, and anecdotes that that bear out how good that is for you I've never been able to get into it it's not to say I'm an ungrateful person I just I don't know what it is about it I've just never been able to do gratitude journaling um a journaling exercise that I did recently that I I'm sure is is a somebody else has done and written about somewhere but I I came to myself based off some things that I was reading was I just gave myself three or four different prompts each day, which was, what did I enjoy today? What did I find interesting today? And what did I not enjoy today? Sometimes I would add to that just a general reflection. 
but I actually really like that those three prompts. I haven't I, I did it I did that for probably 20 straight days. I stopped. Um but it's something I'll probably pick up again. And I really like it because you it it's surprising how many things in the day you'll realize that you actually enjoyed. And those are pattern useful patterns to pick up on because you can figure out like you were talking about with flow, what things you do just for the sake of doing them and out of pure enjoyment. And you, you, you can start to pick up patterns and, and realize, oh, you know, I actually you know, enjoy doing this thing that I never realized I actually enjoy doing, but it appears, you know, in my work and in my personal life and in all these different places. And then what I not enjoy doing is equally, if not more useful, because you shouldn't spend time doing things that you don't enjoy doing but right. of course many of us do quite often so you again you'll realize patterns and aspects of life and work there that you don't enjoy doing and then going forward you can you can think of ways to uh cultivate a life that has less of those things and avoid those things and just be more mindful and then what i find interesting today is kind of a variation on what i enjoy but it's useful in in a different way because it just gives you um, threads that you can pull on and, and maybe hopefully find other things that you enjoy. So it's a slight difference, but uh, I think a useful distinction to make. So those three I find to be really useful. Yeah, I know that sounds super interesting. And are there any activities or kind of tasks that um, you want to kind of share that you kind of overestimated or underestimated how much you enjoy doing them. Um, and how has that kind of affected you? Have you, you know, if you're sitting on the couch and it's like, you don't like to do dishes or you don't like to straighten up the house and you actually um, retrospectively realize like, actually I don't mind doing those as much as I, as I think, you know, you might be more likely to get up off the couch and go do them. Have you kind of had that experience with it as well? Um, where it's actually led you to be, um more present or motivated to do the activity or the inverse too um you know if it's something you did like yeah i guess i mean it's been useful in that it there, i mean there are things i know that i enjoy and that i things that i know that i don't enjoy that you know i i do um and will reflect on and then it's a help it's a nice reinforcement to say yeah okay I, these are the things i really need in my life and these are the things I really don't need in my life. And just every reminder of that, I think, is beneficial because, you know, for me, it's working out and reading are two things I really enjoy. And if I feel like I'm in a rut, it's, you know, I'm probably not doing one of those things. I'm probably spending too much time on my phone or I haven't gone to the gym in a couple of days, you know, things like this. Um, and, and it's just helpful to remind, like, those are things that, that give me um, a lot of energy. And, and conversely, things I don't like doing, spending too much time on my phone, and that, that feels like an energy drain. And so it's helpful to remind, you know, at the end of the day, it's like to check in and with that and understand that that was not something that I enjoyed doing. One of the weirder ones that I didn't expect was I had to, so I work in tech, and one of the things that I was doing one day is I was researching global privacy policy laws for the internet which they differ depending on different regions of the world so uh europe has uh, some of the strictest data privacy laws and i for some reason really enjoyed researching all the different legal nooks and crannies of that and I, i've done this with a few other things at work now um 
I'm not sure why I, I enjoy that, but I just did. So um, I don't know what that says about me exactly, but I think it's a useful piece of information to be aware of. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I think you're just kind of sharpening that analytical tool or I don't know. I don't know what kind of itch you're scratching with that, but sounds sounds pretty interesting. I'm sure there's um, a lot of implications for that, especially in tech. Um, but um, recently, so we actually saw each other, I guess, Saturday, and I set that screen time limit on your phone. Um, have you noticed any benefits from doing that um, yet? And what has the kind of experience been with that? Uh, for yeah, what, so if people don't know, it's it's literally like a parental control. Um, so you can go onto your screen time instead of it just saying, you know, your 15 minutes of Instagram's up um, and you can just go and continue to use Instagram by just ignoring it. It's like a hard limit. Uh, so you can't continue to use it for the rest of the day and you can set various limits on apps for those. And it's something for me personally that I found to be um, super helpful just in limiting things. Um, I find that social media and using the phone is very low reward, but also a pretty low barrier to entry. So I find myself when I'm kind of at the end of my day, low on energy or discipline kind of gravitating towards that myself. But uh, yeah, what have you kind of noticed with that? Yeah, so we can talk about that. And then we should talk about what we did Saturday. But yeah, I sure. found it, I've already found it massively helpful. So on, on my phone, we limited the screen time that I have on pretty much only on social apps. I don't really have other apps on my phone. I keep Netflix and YouTube and Hulu and all that off my phone. And I don't, I don't feel a compulsion to have it on my phone. It's never been a problem for me to have those things on my phone. Um, but, but the social apps were a big time drain for me. And the biggest difference that I've noticed, two big differences is one, it totally changes your behavior with your phone. So for anybody who has a problem or feels like they have a problem with their relationship with their phone, I would highly recommend you do this. So having a, having a lock, a, a lock on the apps after a certain amount of time spent. And for me, I think the limit is 15 minutes total for the day that knowing that the lock is going to appear after 15 minutes and you're going to be completely unable to get in because Drew has the code. I don't know it. He will never tell me. That makes you be so much more judicious with your time spent and actually think before you open the app and say, you know, am I, am I doing this with an intention? Even if the intention is like, I'm just going to mindlessly scroll. I think that's okay because now, you know, you're, you're capped at 15 minutes. So if I spend five minutes mindlessly scrolling, that's what I'm just choosing to do in that moment. And I'm even just more aware of that choice of I'm choosing to spend my time doing this. And that's okay because I, I also know it's, it's going to be capped, but it also forces you to spend more time thinking about what specific action you're going to take. And then sometimes if there is a specific action I want to take, you know, maybe not in the moment, but later in the day, and then I have this compulsion to go mindlessly scroll, it'll force me to save that time until the time that I want to take the action that means more to me. So that's been massively 
beneficial. I've already found that some days I'm not even using the full 15 minutes that I have, and I'm just willingly not using the app, which has been great. And then the other benefit of it is, you know, if before I've, I've experimented with doing the screen time thing, which, you know, you can set up yourself, but it's not very useful because um, you can just bypass it if, if you set it up yourself. So it's just not really useful. And I tried and I would always just, you know, all right, one more minute, set it up, do it again. And it's just, it's not enough friction to keep you from doing it. You need that hard lock out that you can't bypass. So um, I usually get the, the new screen time report comes out on your phone if you have it enabled every Sunday. So I'm excited to see what my new screen time report will be for this week. I'm, I'm assuming it's just going to be dramatically lower. I probably spend on average like two and a half hours a day on my phone, I think is what I clock in at. So I'm, I'm guessing that'll be down by about an hour after the end of this yeah. week. Yeah, I feel like when you set up the screen time, without an actual password it's almost like your parent tells you that you can't have any you know cookies you know and they're out on the table and then they just go to bed you're like well you know i know i shouldn't but they're right there so i'm just gonna continue on and go do this thing that i want to do it's just like super low friction as you said and you can just kind of continue on as you please yeah and and i, I you know what's also interesting is like, this doesn't stop you from going on Instagram or Twitter on your laptop, but I've just found for myself, I will look at those things still on my laptop, but there's just, it doesn't have the same pull as the phone does. I mean, there's just so much more friction to pulling out your laptop and, and going on these uh, services. Like, it's not something you can really do while you're, you know, it, first of all, it's not something you can do when you're outside of your, you know, your, where your desk is or, or, where you keep your laptop unless you want to travel around everywhere with your laptop in that case you have to get wi-fi so it's just not a nightmare um so yeah it's really the phone is the biggest the biggest key um to changing behavior there i've found at least yeah and so something else that i wanted to get to and moving off of um some of these i guess we did end up covering some of the productivity uh things that have worked for us um but I wanted to ask you about kind of your exercise routine. Um, I know you got some exercise in today. Um, why don't you just uh, cover for us a little bit about what you do in terms of exercise um, and then how you kind of think of building out, I guess, a plan for yourself. Are you just, you know, going to the gym and doing what you feel like? Is there like a methodology that you use or um, structure, structured plan that you follow? How do you kind of think about that? Um, I don't really, I don't, I haven't really ever followed a plan for exercise. I mostly just do, uh, every time I go work out full upper for full lower. And then, uh, you know, if I have, have a day where I just don't know what to do, I'll probably just do do a full body resistance training workout i like doing a lot of leg workouts uh, i like running a lot um sometimes i'll run and lift in the same day so i just enjoy being active so that's probably i probably do at least something like that at least five days a week if not six um the run is kind of my default thing that i'll go to if i don't feel like doing anything else um but yeah i'm pretty unstructured in that way 
but that's it's worked for me uh working out has just been a and 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 thankfully too because i realize this is not the easiest thing for for people it's just it's been a habit i've never had to really cultivate or re-spark in myself it's never something i've lost so it's been a pretty easy thing to keep up for myself um which i'm happy about but i, I know a routine can be uh beneficial for a lot of people I think we just scrapped that. <laughs> Sorry. What? I don't know. I, I don't know why I asked that question. We'll just cut this if you want. That's fine. Let's just talk about what we did Saturday. Yeah, sounds good. So All right. Saturday. You want me to just... No, we're just going to keep going. Just... We're not going to cut any of this. So let's you just don't keep cut this? You're going to no. post this part of it? I'm going to post this part. It's fine. Um, so anyway, Saturday. Saturday we went to, for anyone listening who knows this podcast, the podcast called the All In Podcast, and it's hosted by um, Chamath Palahapatiya. I'm going to butcher the name. His name, Drew, you can correct me because you say his, his name better. Um, David Sachs. <laughs> I think it's Jason. like Palahapatiya. Okay, yeah. David Sachs. Um, What's Friedberg's first name? David. David Friedberg, yeah. Um, and Jason Calcanus. They're four just, you know, uh, serial investors and entrepreneurs, and their resumes go on forever, and we don't, we can't get into it. You can look them up if you're interested. But they have a great podcast where they just cover a whole bunch of different macroeconomic trends and politics and current events and news in the tech and investing world and um, you know, they're all multi-millionaires and, and in Chamath's case, uh, or maybe, maybe even Sachs' case, uh, multi-billionaires. And so they've, they've been kind of in, in, in the game for a while. And um, I don't think really not that either of us are, are super interested um, in much of what they talk about. I mean, a lot of the, the, the tech stuff is somewhat useful to me sometimes in my job, just for understanding broader trends in the industry. Um, but I think we both just, what we have in common is we both just find it, you know, a very in, intellectually interesting podcast. I know you're kind of more into like the economics and finance stuff, but um, we went to a meetup for that, which was really fun. So Drew, if you want to talk about kind of maybe your experience there a little bit. Yeah, no, I thought it was, um, you know, going into it, I didn't really exactly know you know, the people that would be there, or, um, you know, obviously it's a podcast for, of people that are serial entrepreneurs and like in tech. And obviously the guys that have the podcast are super, um, you know, uh, successful. So I didn't really know if it was going to be super high profile people there and, you know, if they're going to be like wearing suits, even like, I don't know what the, the vibe was with it, but uh, it ended up being um, a lot of super down-to-earth people that were tackling problems in a lot of different spaces. I think there was pharmaceuticals, um, there was somebody in, a few people in sales, a lot of people in tech, uh, academia, and um, a lot of just different viewpoints, which I think that's one of the things that makes me gravitate towards the show. Um, there are four different people on the show, like 
James mentioned, and a lot of them have very different views and backgrounds. So I think it's one of the forms of media that's just super intellectually honest because they hold themselves to a high standard. And um, also they cover a wide range of topics. You know, it's like James said, finance, macroeconomics, politics, tech, uh, science, and, um, you know, different like wars and civil strife. It's, it's kind of all encompassing and they're not necessarily experts on any of the topic, but any of the topics in particular, but uh, their opinion is kind of that if these things affect us, then we should be able to hold a opinion on it. So super interesting po uh, podcast for anyone that's interested. Yeah, no, for sure. And I just thought it was interesting that we went to the meetup. I think I, I've, I've now gone to a few meetups for, you know, now it's podcasts and, and kind of other things of, of people who have, you know, we have interests um, from just internet content. I've been to newsletter meetups and um, meetups through people I've, you know, met on Twitter and just kind of the, the broader lesson here that I've been kind of telling to people is um, these, these meetups of uh, that get people together who have, who, who center around, you know, this kind of one interest that, you know, in the case of a podcast or a newsletter, it's a very nuanced interest because it, it's something that involves multiple personalities and covers a broad range of topics and goes in depth on a lot of things. It's a great way to meet people and to network and to have, build some really high value relationships because you're going into it already knowing that, you know, these people, you know, have a massive intellectual interest that you share. So um, it's it just, it takes a lot of the stress and trepidation out of quote unquote networking and, and kind of doing a, a cold network with people. Um, so this is just something I've been thinking about recently and, and I've been trying to do more of is, is these meetups around a shared interest with people because I think they're very powerful and uh, often overlooked or not even really known about by people. I think part of it is kind of like the, and even I felt this, it's, it's kind of the, stigma of meeting people off the internet you know like it's almost like it feels like you're going to comic-con or something you know not that there's anything wrong with that but just like the stigma of you know you're meeting a bunch of internet friends um so it it ends up being a lot more not that it has to be normal but uh more normal than anticipated um you kind of share that same sentiment like was there a trepidation and yeah. going yeah yeah, no, I mean, yeah, no, I think there is, there's always going to be a little bit of a trepidation in going and meeting people you've never met before. But I think what is, what's interesting about podcasts and newsletters is because it centers around a central personality or, or group of personalities in the case of All In, the host of the podcast or author of the newsletter is, they're, they're the ones kind of organizing the meetup obviously for all in it's, it's a massive podcast so there were meetups all over the country and all different cities that had independent organizers but at the end of the day it's the people who run the newsletter or the podcast or even like the youtube channel who are everyone feels like they have in common and, and through a lot of the content they produce you you feel like you know that person or the, those that group of people who produce that content 
And so it, it doesn't feel, it feels more familiar. It doesn't feel, you know, it's not like just hopping on some forum and, and, and getting a random group of people together to meet up. Um, it, it feels much, there's much more of a warmth to it, I think. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I think it's something that I'd be definitely open to doing more of. I believe for people in the Philadelphia area, their interest in doing more of these meetups um, in the future. So I think quarterly was the plan, right? Yeah, I think quarterly is is the plan for that. But but yeah, no, it's just it's something for people to be aware of and to to consider. So um, anyway, I think we're gonna wrap up here in a couple of minutes. Is there anything else you wanted to to touch on or, or bring up that maybe we can talk about next week? Yeah, I guess um, something I want to touch on is you learning Italian. So what has that uh, process been like and what's kind of your rationale for learning it? Yeah, the quick rationale is I started a show on HBO that's in Italian and I figured <laughs> why, Got that why, inspiration. Not, why not enjoy this more by learning some Italian. I haven't, it hasn't really made me enjoy the show more. I watch it with subtitles anyway, but I, I do like the show itself. It's called My Brilliant Friend, if anybody's interested. But um, but no, I mean, I've always wanted to learn a second language. I've never really had much of a reason to. Italian, it's, it's you know, I guess it's cool. It's simple. Not simple, but like in terms of all the languages you could learn, I think it's probably one of the easier ones, especially for an English speaker. So, and, you know, I'm enjoying it. I've been doing Duolingo and I've never really stuck with Duolingo for that long. I've you know, played around with it in the past, but I am, uh, I'm pretty amazed by how well Duolingo gamifies the language learning process. So I've been pretty impressed with that and I've been pretty hooked on doing it. So I've got a two week streak going. We'll see how long I keep it up for, but uh, I don't know. It brings up an interesting prospect of maybe if I ever want to, want to go take a month or two in Italy, like work remote, maybe I can put put it to use that way. So kind of thinking about that, maybe to keep myself motivated. Yeah, I would say that Duolingo's a pretty solid way to start. And this is a topic that I'm pretty passionate about. Um, just kind of my background with it is uh, learning languages is I took Spanish in high school until my junior year. And halfway through junior year, I dropped it. So I was terrible at Spanish and you know my parents were kind enough to and generous enough to pay for a Spanish tutor and that helped me to uh, I don't want to say barely pass because I still got you know B's in it but it was pretty uh, I don't know it's pretty watered down in terms of grading um, and I never really accumulated any working proficiency with it it was just kind of you know, memorizing 50 words for a test and being able to just pass it or just get a B on it. Um, so I ended up not really being good at Spanish at all. Um, had that perception that I just couldn't learn a language. And then um, about two years ago, I stumbled upon some of Tim Ferriss's stuff on learning languages. And he kind of questioned that notion that you can't learn languages and you just don't have a knack for it he just blames the methods of learning um, for our poor rates of success here in the states um, and so what i did is i use an app sort of like duolingo and for anyone that's interested in learning the language uh, like i said tim ferris has a lot of great um, 
YouTube videos on this. Um, and there's also Fluent Forever. I forget the guy's last name, but it's Gabriel something. And they're all about almost shortcutting the language by learning like the first 600 to 2000 most common words to start. So you learn like 600 words to start. And then after 600 words, you start to use more um, sentence structures and just familiarize yourself with the structures. And so you'll have those structures both in Spanish and then one in English. And there's an app for this called Fluent Forever, which is named after the book of this gentleman named Gabriel, whose last name I can't remember. And then from the beginning with this method, you are trying to speak Spanish or whatever language you're trying to learn. And I think the analogy that I use with learning a language is, you know, I'm working in baseball and I've played baseball in my life. So that's where my analogies gravitate. The thing that you want to do alongside an app like Duolingo or Fluent Forever is lessons with a teacher or professor. Like it's so important that you accumulate that ear, um, especially with different accents that you'll encounter and paces. And then also learn the slang and just have conversation, you know, like just doing Duolingo is um, fun for a certain amount of time, but having that extra time to be in a class and um, pick up on all those, all those other different things is super important. So um, yeah, I would start that from the beginning and just know that it's going to take a lot of hours, but anybody can learn a language. It's not, you know, just people that are gifted um, in learning languages, really anyone can learn it. Um, I think that I'm kind of an example of that. Yeah, I think that, that totally makes sense. I've always thought that if you, if I just got dropped off in another country and had to learn the language, I would be able to do it. I think anybody would. It kind of goes back to something we talked about in the first episode. It's just, you know, if you have skin in the game, it makes it, makes it much easier to learn something. Um, Definitely. It, you know, if your survival depended on it, um, you would you'd probably pick up the language pretty quick you might not yeah. be fluent or, or the best speaker in the world but you'd probably rapidly advance versus if you're just playing around with duolingo and i don't have any illusions that like i know i'm not going to become fluent in any language just using duolingo um and yeah that, that is something i've thought of as getting on italki for yeah for italian or so what are you saying is that i should just try to start speaking as if i was fluent as quickly as possible? Well, the professors on italki will teach you words and teach you grammar. Like it's not just for conversation. So they can teach you like, you know, a, a high school teacher would or a tutor would one-on-one, um, -on -one, you know, starting with grammar and things like that and slowly speak to you more and more in that language. And, you know, what I just noticed, uh, two points here is I did not finish my analogy, but I want to just come back to something that you said uh, real quick. The point about survival. I think that a lot of people, when they go abroad, they don't actually have that survival aspect because they're in a group that's a bunch of Americans, right? So you're around a bunch of Americans and yeah, you're in Spain, you're in whatever country, you're in Italy, but 
you're about around a bunch of Americans that are just going to speak in English um, while you're with them. So I don't think that activates that kind of survival mentality. And I think that's why, you know, just because you go to Spain and spend a summer in Madrid doesn't really mean that you've um, progressed in the language. But so my analogy uh, related to baseball that I forgot was um, I would say that Duolingo is almost like hitting off of a, a baseball tee, right? So, you know, it's great to work on your form. Um, it's very structured. It feels good because you can, you know, hit the ball pretty far, pretty consistently. Um, you know, it's Duolingo's gamified. It feels good and it's engineered to feel like that. But Duolingo is certainly not playing the game, okay? If you just do Duolingo and you go onto the streets of Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic, even after doing 10 years of Duolingo, you're going to get absolutely ripped apart, okay? You're going 0 for 4 with four strikeouts. It's going to look really bad. Um, so there's got to be kind of an accompanying method of training. You know, it's not that you don't use the T. It's just that maybe you do other forms of training, like hitting off a pitching machine. You know, that's a little bit more game-like. It's not fully like the game because you can still mess up and your teacher's, you know, not going to laugh at you. I mean, maybe they'll laugh at you, but the stakes aren't as high because it's still practice, right? But just more advanced um, methods where you're failing more is going to foster more learning. If you're getting off, off of Duolingo every time, just feeling like really good about yourself and there's no frustration ever, there's no failure, you're probably not learning that much. So um, that's kind of my analogy with baseball. Yeah, 100%. That, that makes sense. I forgot. Oh, it was, I was reading a Andrew Huberman article recently, who anyone doesn't know, he's a Stanford neuroscientist who writes a lot about and, and talks a lot about, he has a podcast, um, and just talks a lot about um motivation and what drives people and, and kind of the neuro physiology of focus and again productivity i guess he can probably get a little toxic productivity but we can't escape, um, we can't escape it no uh, but he is interesting and and you know worth it's it's a lot of his stuff is worth checking out so but anyway i was reading an article that he posted about um managing your dopamine and one of the things that he says to do is, and I'm not sure exactly how you do this, I guess it's just practice and, and being mindful of it, is associating the difficult process of learning something or accomplishing a task or pushing through a workout and that the pain that comes with that and the resistance that comes with that with uh pleasure it sounds kind of it sounds you know psychosomatic and a little hard to believe but i think it, i think it actually makes sense where you can kind of take like a meta level view of things and just say like if you can enough times you know whether you're learning a language or taking a really difficult class or making you know a career transition and you have to learn something new during the process of doing that difficult thing, if you can enough times 
remind yourself that you're doing something good for yourself. I think that yeah is his point is can actually, you know, release dopamine and what that actually does on, you know, a neurophysical level is actually makes it easier to learn things and you get joy from going through that difficult process of just kind of sucking at something. So I've been yeah. trying to keep that in mind as I try to learn a language. And you're right, like you have to put yourself in a position to be able to actually practice that. So you have to actually do something where you're gonna fall on your face most of the time and just get get comfortable with that. And yeah, Duolingo doesn't really provide that. You know, it's it's a fun thing to do, you know, if you're, you know, on the bus or on the train or, you know, just kind of in like a waiting room somewhere um yeah it's a game but um right and it's useful to a point but yeah it's definitely useful it's not it's not um completely game-like it doesn't fully represent what a conversation is with a you know native spanish speaker but it's useful um you know not saying to hit off the t anymore but um yeah it's just you should just realize the limitations and the strengths of it that's kind of the the overall point with it um, but yeah, I didn't know that about, um, Huberman. That's a super interesting in, um, how I think it's really just a, a reframing. I didn't know the aspects of dopamine, but it sounds like it's almost uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in a way. Um, you know, cause all cognitive behavioral therapy really is, is just reframing experience and, um, noticing like cognitive distortions so you know things like all or nothing thinking overgeneralizing or um i think discounting the positives is one of them as well uh you learn about these things when you're going through cognitive behavioral therapy and it's just a way to reframe experience um one of the powerful examples of this that i've heard on um i think it was sam harris's podcast with Laurie Santos, and she has a Yale course about the science of happiness. And the example that I think I heard this podcast like two or three years ago, and it's really stuck with me is imagine you're climbing Mount Everest, right? I don't know how long that takes, but for most of that journey, or a lot of that journey, you're probably in a lot of pain, you're dealing with wind, you're dealing with freezing temperatures, um, you know, air is getting thinner. It's, it's a pretty hellish experience, right? If you, she says, if you time sample every single second along that, um, the tough parts of that journey, it's like pretty brutal. But then when somebody goes back and reflects on that, you know, it can be the, you know, biggest experience, biggest positive experiences of some, somebody's life. So that retrospective framing of it by adding that purpose completely changes the experience. Although when, in the moment, you know, it was a hellish experience. So yeah, I think um, the power of reframing should not be uh, discounted in any way, but uh, yeah, the, the things about Huberman are pretty interesting. So I'll have to look into that as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's worth checking out for anybody who's, who's interested. And yeah, I guess that is what it really just is, is just you have to reframe for yourself and just start really creating different associations and kind of goes back to what we did, what we both have now with the phone and the parental lock is 
and, and Tim Ferriss talked about this recently too, is like, you, you're really fooling yourself if you think you have enough self-control to resist apps that are, you know, made by companies that, you know, have billions of dollars and sink, you know, millions, if not billions into, into R&D and, and have people working around the clock to, to build experiences that get you to keep coming back and, and disrupt any, even the slightest moment of boredom with an experience that is meant to hook you for as long as possible. Again, wh whatever your kind of stance on, on mobile apps and social media and things are, I'm not taking like a good or evil stance. I'm just saying it's kind of the reality of things is that those things are engineered. Um, and you know, whether that's good or bad, who knows? Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're probably not gonna be able to combat those things. So you have to put systems in place to avoid that. And I think doing that is what allows you to have kind of the moments that Huberman is talking about of just uninterrupted focus where you can start to make those connections of like, okay, difficult thing, process of doing difficult thing leads to good outcome. Anticipation of good outcome makes me feel good while doing the difficult thing. And that's just not something you can do in like five minute blocks that keep getting interrupted by, you know, your phone. Um, so those two kind of go hand in hand. You need long periods of time doing that kind of, you know, like a language, like you're not going to pick up a new language by, you know, I'll practice five minutes here. I'll go on my phone for 10 minutes. I'll practice five minutes here. I'll go on my phone for 15 minutes. I'll do two more minutes and I'll go on my phone again. Like, You'll never learn a language. You'll never learn anything that way. Right. Um, so you, you see it in other things. Definitely. And yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is, um, especially the reframing, I think these are things that we could have uh, whole podcasts on in the future. Um, you know, we could probably dive into it for a week or so and then kind of present some of our findings um, to the audience. But I think this is a good spot to wrap for um, podcast number three, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast number three. Um, like I said in the last, last podcast, we're going to hope to put these out weekly going forward. Um, and hopefully if anybody's listening, they can keep us accountable on that. Any other things that you want to add before we wrap, James? Um, if anybody's listening, please if anybody's listening, please leave a comment. I would actually like to know if anybody, because uh, I see, I see, I see views on these. So we post these on YouTube. We also post these on, I think it's available. It's available on Spotify and the Anchor app. But I will need to update things so it goes out to Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. Um, so we'll do that. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. What else? Um, I think another thing we're going to try to do is get back to posting some more just short form videos like we have on the YouTube already. Um, and we'll probably, we'll figure out a way. We just use Zoom right now to make these. So we're going to pretty low tech. Yeah, we're going to switch over to something else that's just an easy audio capture very soon because that's kind of the biggest impediment to posting these is 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 we have to literally up, put it in iMovie and then edit it which is super annoying and time consuming um so also finding a different software should um help with the cadence 
of these, but I will edit this quickly. It's a quick edit and I'll get this out um, this week. Sweet. Awesome. All right, guys. Till next time. See you later. All right. See ya.